Welcome back to Across the Movie Isle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm spiffy. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends in 2023. 2023! Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, sports rights are the key to the future. The future is likely to be dominated by streaming services serving as adjuncts to big tech enterprises. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Before we talk about YouTube TV snapping up the rights to NFL Sunday ticket for around $2 billion a year, consider this factoid courtesy of Lev Akabas. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Lev. Sorry. Of the 100 most watched TV shows of 2022, 82 of them were NFL games. The 35th highest rated show of 2022 featured the 4 and 10 Broncos playing against the 4 and 10 Rams, and it did better than the Oscars, any Olympic event, uh, any soccer game. And this was a year in which we had a Winter Olympics and a World Cup. The Oscars, a favorite of this here podcast was the 77th highest rated show of the year. Uh, the Kentucky Derby came in 88th. The point here, very simple. NFL is king. The NFL is the king. Uh, and even when ratings are underwhelming, let's say, as they were for Prime Video's Thursday night football offerings, uh, which averaged about 3 million fewer viewers than advertisers were promised, they're still pretty big. 9.5 million viewers on average is about 300,000 more viewers than 60 Minutes, the highest rated non-football program got last week. All of which is to say that, again, sports is one of the two lifelines that continue to tether people to linear cable and linear network three. Inertia is a big one. People just don't want to don't want to get rid of their cable because we've had cable forever. Why would we get rid of that? The other big tether is cable news, of course. And once Warner Discovery figures out how to get CNN on HBO Discovery, whatever, and whenever Fox News gets on something and whenever MSNBC gets, I guess that's already on Peacock. I don't know. Anyway, once that happens, it's done. The cable's done. Sports on streaming, news on streaming, everything else on streaming, it's all done. And I'm sure many others are going to follow my lead here being a trailblazer. Uh, Regardless, the point is a fairly simple one. For all the focus on which streamer has which hit show, be it Netflix's Wednesday or HBO Max's White Lotus or Hulu's Only Murders in the Building, the one thing that really truly unites audiences, the last dying remnant of the monoculture, is the NFL in particular and kind of sports in general. It's why Vince McMahon is unretiring in the face of sexual assault scandals so he can shepherd a sale of the WWE before its next big rights deal is signed. Uh, Even a sports-like product such as professional wrestling with its built-in fan base, is a huge boon for any service trying to attract attract subscribers. Peter, uh, have we all been focused on the wrong things when it comes to the streaming wars? Well, we've been focused on the wrong things in the sense that we've not been focusing on the core business. Because the core business for sort of uh, for video content delivery is ultimately live sports. And like, that's the thing that you can get huge, truly huge numbers of people to tune in for. And one of the reasons why sports sort of still leads is you can't time shift it. It's totally resistant. Not totally. It's mostly resistance to the kinds of um, of format disruptions that we have seen in the Netflix streaming era. There's not going to be, you know, a whole season that drops at once. We're never going to have binge NFL. We're not going to have, oh, wait, just watch at your own leisure NFL, right? It's people want to see the game at the same time that everybody else sees the game. And it's genuine, unlike watching a movie an hour later or a day later, unlike watching an episode of Game of Thrones a day later, sure, you might miss a little bit of discussion with your colleagues the next day in the office, but people don't want to, like, 
don't want to watch sports three or four days afterwards. Yes, I understand. There are some people who even back, you know, going back 15 years ago to the DVR era, watched sports on delay. I, I get that that does happen. But it is a minority Sickos. taste, and even for, even for the people who do it that way, uh, who watch television that way, almost no one prefers to watch their sports that way. And so, because of that, and because of the just sort of the, the you combine that with the generally huge draw of the NFL, and it's like that's that's where the money's at, that's where the viewership is at. On the other hand, to go back to your question, have we been talking about the wrong things? No, we've been talking about the right things. This is a movies podcast. Movies matter, and stories that. That are cho that are it, like intentionally constructed also matter, right? Like part of the part of what people like about sports is that like it's a sort of the the, the story. Like it's there is a narrative that's happening, and there's sort of narratives that are being you know so the sports writers will tell. Oh, this is the story of this team and this game and this player this year. At the same time, it is it's generative, right? It's almost like a video game. It's a game, right? It's sort of you don't know what's going to happen until the all the different pieces and players uh, kind of come together to make it happen, whereas with a movie, with a television show, with the kinds of things that we talk about on this podcast, someone has sat in a room uh, with a with a computer or a pen and a paper or, you know, a bunch of other writers, and they have decided over many, many, many hours exactly what is going to happen. And that's it's a different art and it's a different thing. And I think that that stories that are that are told intentionally and with care or sort of like, uh, you know, and are designed by by human minds um, and by human creators are still important, even if uh, the, the masses are where, you know, are with NFL. And I, I should also say, I, like, for context. I'm not a sports watcher. You're not a sports at guy. At all. No. Like, you... really not at all. I, I, I saw a study maybe a decade ago that uh, looked at how many people in the United States essentially never watch sp any kinds of sports regularly, and it's only 7% of the population. So I don't know what the number is today. That's a, definitely an old number, but I am the 7%. Yeah, you're, you're a 7%er. Alyssa, before I get to my next question, I want to ask you a question that is related to this, uh, and you'll see why in a second. How many shows in the last month have you watched that had advertisements that weren't like live news? None. My family and I watch a fair amount of football on Sunday, like kind of in a random way to keep the kids entertained when it's cold and like to give ourselves a break. And so that programming has advertisements. In fact, our four-year-old has started walking around singing the Liberty Mutual jingle, which is uh, not like not a parental problem that I anticipated having, but it's pretty amusing. But other than that, you know, we're not watching a ton of you know, broadcast or even cable TV lately where like the one show that we're watching regularly is Abbott Elementary. And we watch that like a day late on Hulu in part because we don't have to pay for ads. And, you know, that's when we can actually watch it. So very few. Right. So here's here's my my broader question, then the, the whole sports, the whole live watching live sports model is based on advertisement. It is based on this uh, your inability to time shift it, as Peter mentioned, and the uh, ability to then sell ads on that. But the whole streaming revolution, at least until fairly recently, was kind of premised on this HBO model of like no ads, right? Netflix until very, very recently, no ads. Uh, HBO until very, very recently, no ads. Hulu was the one kind of big exception to this. And then you have the free streaming video on demand services, the AVOD services, which are, are kind of premised on an advertising model, but and are uh, like 
it, very very popular, but the ads are very low quality. It's it's you're not getting uh, you're not getting a ton of money per impression. My question then is this: Isn't the shift to sports and the 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 attempt to monetize sports, and frankly, like the move away from a network based model where anybody can tune in at any time to a subscriber based model where you have to be subscribed to a service and then sit through all the ads? Is that kind of that? I, I I don't know that sports consumers are going to like that. Yeah, well, I think that one of the things it does is it will end up making the price you pay to watch this stuff more explicit, right? I mean, right now, a consumer may sit down and think like, okay, rationally, I haven't cut the cord because I like sports. But they haven't sat down and said like, sports are worth X dollars to me, right? You know, I mean, if you're like, if you're opting into Sunday ticket or something like that, you have a more, you're more price aware, Um I think is the way to put it rather than sort of price sensitive. But, you know, the cable bundle and the advertising model have really obscured, you know, the exact dollar figure that consumers are paying for this stuff. The The payments are sort of disaggregated across these different re- revenue streams. And so I think this is going to be an interesting, you know, almost like market making function for, you know, for sports rights. As you know, it's not just that the streamers are paying specific prices for them, but individuals are end up going to end up doing, I think, it's like much more specific wallet calculations about what sports are worth to them. And that ends up being good for people like me, who in the uh, the the cable era effectively had to pay the ESPN tax. Yes. No, but that's not I, I disagree with that strongly. It's actually gonna it, it ends up being worse for everybody. Everybody says, oh, I don't want to have to pay the ESPN tax. I just want to get FX and AMC and Hulu. But AMC, FX, Turner Classic Movies, all these other channels, right? HGTV, whatever, it's not like 300 million people are watching those too. Every cable subscriber benefits from the bundle. It's like the thing I will shill hardest for. The the biggest and worst change that we have made is moving away from the cable bundle to the individualized streaming services because like it's nice to have the options just to watch random things every once in a while and instead of uh you know complaining about how oh I'm subsidizing the OWN network. I've never watched an Oprah Winfrey anything. Instead celebrate that all of the Oprah watchers are are subsidizing your Mad Men binge. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing that I would say is that sports are actually not that easily adaptable to a world without commercial breaks, right? Because like sports involve pauses in play. There is no sport that doesn't have timeouts as a formal part of the game. I mean, even in baseball, you can have like the conference at the mound. I mean, I guess like maybe... Inning breaks, I mean. Yeah, exactly. Like in baseball, you know, like one team has to trot off the outfield, another team has to trot in. You know, the NFL has all sorts of breaks for setups and penalties and, you know, reviews of play calls. And so unless you just air all of that dead time, you can't have a version of that that's adless. And so professional sports have, to a certain extent, been reshaped to accommodate the need to have ads, but also ads have filled up inevitable dead time in the games in ways that, you know, make that relationship very hard to disentangle. Mm Mm-hmm. No, totally. Totally. It's just it's just interesting because so so few streamers are set up to do advertisements well. Uh, like yeah. essentially none of them. The only the only one that really was built with ads in mind was Hulu. Um and they do an okay job with it, but I I pay extra for the Hulu uh ad-free version even though I only watch like one Hulu show a month just because I would ra- I like I would rather not have to deal with 3 minutes of the same ad over and over again uh because I don't want to watch it. 
It's just a few dollars extra, and if you're binging something over the course of three hours, seeing those ads being spliced in is not pleasant. One thing I would say that I think is interesting is that there are lessons from sports, and in particular the NFL's dominance, for the rest of pop culture to learn, right? I mean, because, you know, the NFL is not sort of the dominant cultural experience in America just because football is interesting to watch, although it is. Like, it's a fun, it is a fun game to watch. It, you know, it includes a level of violence that makes it exciting and whatever anyone says. I don't think there's ever going to come, like, a moral tipping point where Americans turn off. Like, people people like watching large, extremely fit men take pretty serious risks to their physical and cognitive well-being for money. And so, you know, there is a much must-watch element built into it, as Peter has noted. It's must-watch in the time slot. But there is a huge external culture built up around football that the NFL has encouraged in a lot of ways, right? I mean, there are, you know, there's the cultural ritual of tailgating. There are, you know, there is sort of the selling of football as a secular holiday that Americans celebrate together. There is a linkage of football to, you know, like activities like grilling, foods like beer. There is an entire gambling infrastructure attached to football in the form of fantasy football. And there are, you know, there is a wide range of teams with distinct subcultures that have been cultivated over time. And to a certain extent, you see a minor version of this with you know, fandoms for like DC and Marvel or, you know, even the Fast and Furious movies. Or but Taylor Swift. There is n- yeah, exactly. But there is no equivalent to sports in terms of long-running storylines, identity formation, sort of attached cultural rituals that are mainstream and accessible to everyone. And, you know, I think like that's a really hard thing to just sort of build from scratch or for the hell of it, right? Like, most most Americans, you know, even if Marvel movies are the one time they go to a theater in a given year, are not going to go to Comic-Con, right? Like, they're not going to derive a huge part of their identity from being like a Marvel versus a DC person in the same way they might derive from being like a Ravens event. Like, neither my husband nor I watch a ton of baseball anymore, but, you know, my our families have a long-running sort of good-natured Red Sox versus Yankees, you know, and like football rivalries. Our parents like buy the kids dueling gear, like and give each other a hard time culturally. And there is nothing else in pop culture that provides that kind of script for people or source of identity or source of just regular ritual. And movies are not ever going to do that because you literally can't make these action spectacles that often, right? Like Marvel's probably gotten the closest of anyone, and that's like a couple movies a year and a couple of TV shows. You know, sports is basically every weekend. Alyssa, you're going to regret this when the Tar Heads get out there and start rioting when, uh, you know, Top Gun Maverick defeats defeats Tar yes, at the Oscars. I, will, I mean, you know, when Lydia Tar like, you know, reveals herself to be the real person that she actually is and, like, defeats Maverick. Agreed. I don't really have an exit question here, but I, I do think that's a very interesting idea. I do I do think I, like, was just struck while I was writing this. I was like, well, maybe, maybe we have just been wrong the whole time by focusing on, you know, programming that is scripted or even non-scripted, you know, when when the real thing that's going to end up being the, the shifting tipping point in the streaming wars is sports and not art so anyway i've wasted i've wasted my life that's that's what it comes down to all right uh make sure to swing by bulwark plus for our uh, bonus episode this week we're gonna be talking about hollywood's insular turn movies about movies the movies movie people love making uh speaking of which 
On to the main event, Babylon. Writer-director Damien Chazelle's epic look at the transition from silent era to talkies. Um, that description doesn't really do the film justice, though. It's a three-hour denunciation of decadent excess that revels in the same. It's an ode to the majesty of the motion picture that nevertheless holds its nose when considering the people who actually make the movies. It's a film that simultaneously moralizes about the immorality of the city swells while denouncing efforts to introduce moral standards, uh, both to the people making the movies and to the movies themselves. To use a platitude... Chazelle really is trying to have his cake and eat it here, too. Uh, and while that sort of thing usually rankles for good reason, uh, when the cake is as rich and as decadent as this confection, well, it's really hard to put your heart into getting mad. It doesn't mean there are people out there who uh, aren't trying to do that. There's a residual anti-Chazelle element out there. I don't, I don't really, I've never understood it, but there are people who really hate Whiplash and La La Land. The folks who watch a lot of Turner Classic movies and love the silent era are predictably annoyed at this film that kind of hypes up the grotesque misdeeds of early Hollywood stars and starlets at the of highlighting their great works. And look, I get it. Uh, I can understand being annoyed by that and just by being annoyed by this movie in general, which weaves together the stories of fading silent star Jack Conrad, who's played by Brad Pitt, and would-be starlet Nellie Leroy, played by Margot uh, Robbie. Their stories are watched with eager anticipation by budding executive Manny Torres, who's played by Diego Calva. He's a Mexican immigrant who refashions himself as a Spaniard in exile as he rises up the ranks of the studio system. Um, there's a there's a fourth arc, that of jazz musician Sidney Palmer, who's played by Jovan Adepo, that almost feels kind of tacked on. We can talk about that in a little bit. Uh, but it, it, it definitely felt like, oh, we also need to make sure we get uh, some some racism in there, just to be sure. Chazelle's point in this film, if as long as we're talking about you know films having a point, I think he has kind of three that he's he's making here. Point first, artists have always had crazy personal lives, and we never really cared that much because all we really care about is that big glorious image on the silver screen, right? The single tear rolling down a starlet's cheek, the the king's embrace of his lover while battle rages below and the sun sets into the mountains above. It's it's all very beautiful and moving. A uh, point the second, technological change may disrupt who is making movies and how movies are made, but it does not diminish the power of the image on the big screen. Uh, like Singing in the Rain, right? This is a movie about the ways in which sound made silent stars obsolete, but the movies rolled on and roll on still in a montage at the end of the picture we get snippets of films throughout the ages from the silent to the classic era to the digital realm movie magic retaining its power despite the shift from analog to digital from horseback chariot races to the wilds of pandora point the third is tied to the second point and it's this hollywood is an idea in the film's centerpiece speech gossip columnist eleanor st john who's played by gene smart tells conrad that he was destined to fade because all stars fade even if their presence on the big screen is in fact immortal his time is up someone else's time is here but as long as people spool celluloid through projector spockets he will live look this movie's kind of a mess i'm all over the place just describing it uh, it's at least 40 minutes too long even if some of that repetition serves a purpose for instance Seeing Leroy and everyone else on the set with her grow more and more frustrated when she can't hit her marks for sound. I don't know that we needed to see 12 takes of that, but it, it works. It, it works for the film. It's just long. It still slows everything down, right? Ditto for the numerous Hollywood parties, each debauched in their own similar way. The movie is very derivative of Boogie Nights. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit, um, which is similarly decadent, yet somehow tighter and better. There's the whole cake and eating it problem. I don't know. 
I can understand not liking this movie. The camera never stops moving. Chazelle is constantly pushing in, swirling around, tracking through house parties for no good reason. It's like watching a guy have a manic episode and being unable to like step into the screen and help him. And yet I was never bored. I appreciated the the sentiment of the picture. I thought it was hilarious when Tobey Maguire, aka Spider-Man, uh, took Manny to see the quote-unquote future of movies, and it was just this mute muscle guy in a mask who was eating live rats for $20 a throw. Felt like a not-so-subtle way of uh, making fun of our current moment but whatever wait uh, i don't get it what's that about and, yeah exactly pit and smart absolutely entrancing uh robbie brings 110 percent of all of her manic energy to Leroy. uh calva is the most believable human character in the picture i think the only one who has like anything resembling personal loyalty as part of his personality matrix uh, babylon a not great movie that i kind of loved i'm ron burgundy Alyssa, you are the silent film groupie of the team uh what did you make of babylon So that's a thumbs up, right? (laughs) I don't know. I don't think it really works as a movie. In part, I don't think I found Calva as convincing as you did in this movie. I think he is kind of a blank. And the movie kind of rests on this initial encounter that Manny has with Nellie and suggests that that is sort of this series of fleeting encounters with her becomes sort of the organizing force in his life in some ways, despite the fact that he never really sort of sees or engages with her as a person and never really gets to know her very well, right? I mean, they see each other at this one wild party where she is like the ultimate sort of like manic pixie dream girl of silent Hollywood And, you know, he's, like, excited to see her, you know, at this moment where she gets her start. They don't really see each other again until, I think, literally years later in New York where she is visiting her mother in a sanitarium where they have this sort of weird encounter. And so the movie is in part about sort of the indelibleness of image on the screen, but it doesn't quite hit its mark about the sort of cruelty and limitations of seeing someone that way in real life, right? I mean, you know, Nellie is like an addict and a screw-up in a really fundamental way. And Manny, despite seeing her at her just like absolute messiness and most undisciplined, can't acknowledge that. And, you know, the movie, like you know, kind of gets at that in the final sequence where, you know, he thinks they're running off to Mexico and she effectively gives a performance. It's like, yes, we're going to run off. We're going to get married. And then skips out on him because she recognizes that the image is unsustainable, even if he can't. And, you know, if that's supposed to be sort of the central argument of the movie, I don't think Kelva really has the chops to nail it and sell it. And I don't and I think the movie is so busy that it can't quite stick the landing on it. And, you know, I mean, I think that as tacked on as the sort of jazz trumpeter subplot are, in a way, like the movie is most interesting when it's about you know, the trumpeter about Lady Faye and about Jack, who are people who are navigating, 
the gaps between the image they're expected or allowed to play in public and sort of more private selves that have greater integrity, right? And, you know, they're complementary in the sense that, you know, Jack is someone who cannot live without the public image, right? Like he cannot find a way to be a private self without that sort of public affirmation and so destroys himself because when he no longer has that sort of public adored self to rely on, he has no private self sort of left over to sustain him. You know, you have the trumpeter, Sidney, walking away from Hollywood entirely because he is unwilling to, you know, to be, you know, purely sort of a race performer in this, you know, limited derivative, really just sort of ugly way. And then you have Faye, who, you know, for a while in the movie is able to turn her lesbianism into a kind of public performance that renders it acceptable so she can, you know, carry on an actual romantic life in private and is the only character who kind of finds a third way where, you know, she goes to Europe, she's hooked up with Pathé, which is, you know, still a recognizable company making movies. She finds, you know, an alternative in a way that neither Sydney nor Jack do. And, you know, that's that's almost a more interesting troika than Nellie's story, which is sort of duplicative with Jack's in some way. And I think those three stories all feature... You know, I mean, Robbie is totally committed to the role, but because it, it it's a role that's always sort of in conversation with Calva's performance, which is not as strong and that lacks some of the nuance and shading and introspection that it ought to have is pulled down a little bit. And I think that the sort of three-part structure of those other stories, to me, made for a stronger movie, but probably one that doesn't exist without like Margot Robbie's Manic Pixie Dream Lady. Yeah. So you don't think that Manny works as like a cipher or a audience stand-in, basically, just to to he is the person that we are to project ourselves onto. You know, we're the ones watching these parties from his point of view, uh, like playing executive and saying, well, I could do it, you know, better. I could do it better like this. And then realizing as you insinuate yourself into the system that you have to make the same sort of morally tricky decisions that he makes. For instance, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the jazz singer uh, who has to uh, he has to wear blackface at some point. So the, his movies will play in the in the South. And it's very important, I think, that uh, Manny is the one who asks him to do that. Yeah. Because it is it is the audience that has been making these requests of artists for uh, just as long as the executives have. But the movie never – it doesn't have any interest – like Manny never has any introspection, right? He never has these sorts of moments of decision where he's just carried along in this, right? I mean he and Sydney don't have enough of a relationship and despite the fact that he's sort of introducing himself as Spanish, like the movie never deals with – Manny's race in any substantive way, right? Like, we never see someone reacting to him as Mexican. Obviously, he launders his Mexican ancestry successfully. But, you know, there is no... The movie has no real sense of, like, does that feel like anything to him to recast his ancestry? Does it feel like anything to him to ask Sydney to make that request? Like, he's just, uh, you know annoyed at Nellie when she can't conform with the makeover that he wants to impose on her. But we never see a moment of decision by Manny about anything, right? Like we never see an inflection point. And because of that, I think he is 
a really insufficient audience stand in because he's so passive, right? I mean, there's never a moment of decision that gets inside his head in any way. It's just, it's too seamless to be interesting. And that did not land for me. Fair enough. Peter, what did you make of Babylon? It's a mess, but it's a glorious mess. So in some ways, I think this is Damien Chazelle's worst picture, but that's, uh, you know, great. I mean, that's like Damien Chazelle has made a bunch of great, great movies. And I think this is in some way, this is the one that works least well. Um, I think the rhythm of this movie initially threw me and then I figured out what it was doing. And it sort of I, I settled into this because what I realized is this isn't a traditional narrative in the way that we typically see a movie structured. Instead, it's a series of elaborate bravura set pieces. Uh, the movie unfolds almost in chapters, even though they're not labeled as such. Um, and each one of these set pieces is incredibly technically proficient. I mean, all of those ridiculously long takes in the opening party sequence, right? Uh, that just sort of show how how effective Chazelle is at staging $80 million worth of, you know, insane old Hollywood party. Um, and each one of them, pretty much builds to a punchline. Uh, so you mentioned that whole sequence with where uh, they're shooting a, a film on sound for the first time. And yes, it's long. Uh, you might even say it's overlong, but I think the overlongness of it works for a purpose and for a reason, which is that it exhausts you. It is designed to exhaust you because that process is maddening. If you have, if you have ever worked on a on any kind of uh, video production. I've so I've never been like I've never worked on like a real film set, but even very small video productions. Like you find that oh, you think you've got 4 hours to shoot this thing. No, no, no. What it actually turns out is you've got two and a half hours to find the right number of electrical outlets and to make sure that all of the cords reach to the places where they're supposed to reach and that actually that your actor can like reach his arm in the the right way to like no, it's all logistical stuff. And then finally, somehow or another, at, at the very end, like in the last 12 minutes, it all comes together in, in you know, in, in some sort of art. It's just logistical headache after logistical headache. And in some ways, I was reminded a little bit of uh, of the Fablemans here. And the part of the arguments of the Fablemans uh, is uh, Spielberg is saying that that cinema is essentially a technical art and the act of managing a bunch of different technologies in service of creating art. And that's a big part of the argument that this movie makes as well. And I think it all these these extremely long set pieces, the, all of which again just build to something like often funny, you know the the bit with Brad Pitt um, on the mountain and the explosions and all of that, and then at the end, the end, the butterfly just lands on his shoulder, and it's suddenly it's not just the perfect shot; it's the perfect shot with an element that no one knew would be there because that's the magic of the movies, even though it's all totally insane and no one could have planned it, and it like it looked like it was going to fail. You know, because they didn't have because they broke all of their cameras because their director was a freaking madman. Right. Like and it forces you to engage with the extremity, with the enormity and with the the insanity of the entire project of making movies. And I I don't I, you know, I don't know if I think this is a great movie, but it's a hell of a picture. And I and I 
I, I really kind of enjoyed it and respected it for that. I actually just want to ask you guys, though, about a very specific sequence that you mentioned, Sonny, which is this very long montage at the end of the sort of future of movies after sound that is then interspersed with what I believe is the um, celluloid, uh, sort of images of celluloid being developed or sort of, like the chemical process by which film uh, comes into being. And that sequence is fascinating, and it struck me as just like absurdly long and self-indulgent in a way that I both appreciated because I, like Damien Chazelle, find beauty and meaning that is almost impossible to describe in movies, right? Movies uh, uh, approach the, uh, there's a line in this movie about how all art should like, should aspire to be like music and to have, right, like to have the, uh, the quality of music. Movies to me at their best, like reach that. And like, I am just like, my heart just sort of melts at, at 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 a great movie or even sometimes at a bad movie that is very interesting right in a way like i don't care about sports i care about stories and images and sounds orchestrated t together but that sequence struck me as just like almost self-defeatingly long in a way that i was like okay i was with you up until this point but now like if i were this if i were the editor if i were the producer on this i'd be like normal audiences are gonna be so put off on the other hand the movie starts with a giant elephant diarrhea scene so maybe maybe by five minutes in normal audiences are already so put off and nobody saw this thing anyway i don't know so i saw it uh, on a wednesday at like the the it started at like twelve thirty. So I was uh, it was about four o'clock by the time that this montage happens. I'm sitting there in the theater, and when the montage starts, literally every other audience member got up out of the the uh, movie and left. I was there were there were three <laughs> other people in the theater, one couple and one single singleton. All three of them got up from their seats and exited the theater at that point, thinking the movie was over. And it's not over. There's still there's still some more to come at the end. But it, it felt like a very good metaphor for how this movie kind of works and what it's doing. Because the audience, man, it comes and goes. But the, the the image is eternal. My critical read on that that sequence is I I think it's it is as horribly confused as everything else that is going on in this movie. Because if you if you watch the if you watch the montage at the end, uh, you see images from the silent era to the sound era to the beginning of the era of special effects and then there's a a little uh, uh an end of film strip uh, fin de cinema little clip and then the digital age starts then it's all computers and it's it's james cameron with t2 and then james cameron again with avatar and the matrix and and then the matrix and all of these images are very explicitly inhuman the the image from terminator 2 is the t1000 alloy split in half the matrix shot is the the lines of code it's not a it's not a shot of matrix and and trinity or neo and trinity it's a shot of lines of code the avatar image is just a bunch of navi uh writers and then from there it then goes to the image of celluloid being formed right the, to the to the actual chemical process of like getting film into chemicals and making the colors work and you could make one of two arguments here. You could make the argument that Chazelle is saying that this is the eternal continuity of film as an art form from one to the other, and it's all the same. Or you could be saying he is actually saying that digital is the death of cinema, that we need to get back to the technicolor dreamscape of, you know, wild chemical processes and all that instead of what we have now, which is a, I don't know, a cold and digital future. I do think it's worth just 
just um, just briefly hearing what Chazelle has said about this, where he said in an interview last month or so, I think of this movie as a poison pen, a hate letter to Hollywood, but a love letter to cinema, which if you that doesn't like you that can doesn't answer the question that in this film doesn't answer uh, Alyssa what did you make of that final montage I mean it's ridiculous and also is the moment when I like felt like Manny and I were most on the same page I was just like it's all so beautiful it's all so beautiful so yeah I like it's obviously wildly self-indulgent and confused and just lovely self-indulgent and confused and kind of lovely I would say at least two of those three most people would agree on with Babylon. Yes. I'll let I'll let you everybody else pick which which two they want. All right, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Babylon, Peter? This is a thumbs up, but maybe only for people who like this podcast. I think for like normal people who like just want to go watch a movie, I just can't really recommend it to a lot of folks. <laughs> Alyssa. I mean, I assume that watching this is what doing cocaine is like, having never done cocaine, and so. I guess it's a thumbs up if you want the experience of cocaine without actually getting high. Okay. Uh, uh, I, I am also a thumbs up on this. And I I, I don't know. I, it's, it's, I don't know that I, I, again, I don't know that I love this movie, but I do love kind of thinking and talking about it. So uh, it's a decent chance that at one point in the, at some point in the far off future, I will end up loving it all right that is it for this week's show make sure to head over to bulwark plus on friday for our bonus episode tell your friends strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences if we don't grow we'll die you did not love today's episode please complain to me on twitter at sunny bunch i'll convince you that it is in fact the best show in your podcast feed see you guys next week 